You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on the 7th day of May, 2012. Let me take this opportunity, as always, to invite all of the listeners to my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, videos, and radio shows created and conducted by myself over the past five years. And while you're there, I certainly hope you will take the time to explore through the archives and make the most of the hundreds and hundreds of hours of media that is there available freely for download, because it is a resource, so I hope you're using it as such. And over the next few weeks, you will have even more time to explore the archives at your leisure, as I'm going to be taking a few weeks off for vacation, and in that time, there will be, well, basically no updates to the website. So I will be around until the end of the week, but after that, it will be no updates to the website until the beginning of June. So during that time, once again, of course, you can make the most of the archives and explore previous podcast episodes and interviews to your heart's content. And you look forward to the return of this podcast at the beginning of June. But until then, of course, the radio show will be continuing as usual every weeknight at 11 p.m. Central on republicbroadcasting.org. And in my absence, there will be a series of guest hosts who will be uh, taking over the reins of the program. On Monday nights, we have Stefan Molyneux of freedomainradio.com. On Tuesday nights, we have John Rappaport of nomorefakenews.com. On Wednesday nights, we'll have Holland van den Neuenhoff and James Lane of the uh, film A Noble Lie at anoblelie.com. Thursday nights will be James Evan Pilato of mediamonarchy.com. And Friday nights will be Richard Andrew Grove of tragedyandhope.com. And once again, that is starting on May 14th and continuing all the way to till June 1st. So I certainly hope you will be tuning in for those radio shows in my absence. Uh, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing them if, when, and as I'm able to on the road, and certainly when I come back from my trip. But on that note, I will have very little, if any, uh, internet access while I'm away, so the radio RSS feed will not be being updated in my absence. The best way to listen to the show is live on republicbroadcasting.org, or barring that, you can always go into the RBN archives if you're an RBN member, which I suggest you become. I believe it's only $1.33 a month or somewhere thereabouts, and you can get complete access to the archives of all of the radio shows that Republic Broadcasting airs, including Corbett Report Radio. And uh, certainly in my absence, that's the best way to get those radio shows. Or, barring that, you can wait for my return and I'll be putting up all of the radio shows that aired during my absence. On that uh, note, of course, also while I'm away, there will be no emails that I'll be able to really uh, to reply to during that time. I certainly won't be able to check my email very much, if at all, and I won't be able to reply very much, if at all. So please, uh, please hold off on the emails, if at all possible, until my return in June. And along similar lines, I will also similarly be unable to fulfill any DVD orders that come in during that time. So if you do want to purchase a DVD... Maybe it's best to wait off till June, but uh, you certainly can purchase it in my absence. I just won't be able to obviously ship it off to you until I get back in June. So having said all of that, one other thing to note, interview 509 with Roger Charles about his book on the Oklahoma City bombing is a very interesting interview, I think, and worth checking out. And for those of you who did download it when it was first released and or get it delivered automatically via any of the RSS feeds... 
you may have gotten a truncated version of that interview. It cut off the last couple of minutes for the of the interview for, for no reason that I could really uh, find out. But at any rate, I have put up the cor- corrected file with the remaining two minutes of that interview. So that has been replaced on the website. So if you did get a shortened version of that interview that cut off quite abruptly, you can now down- download the full interview with the ending of that interview from the website. And of course, I'll put the link in the show notes for today's episode. And having said all of that, once again, I will be joining you for this podcast at the beginning of June, so look forward to that. And until then, let's enjoy today's episode. Welcome to episode 229 of the Corbett Report podcast, Remembering Fletcher Prouty. I have little doubt that Colonel Leroy Fletcher Prouty, or Fletcher as he was often known, is well known to at least a large section of my listening audience. But for those of you out there who really know absolutely nothing at all about Fletcher Prouty, you can of course go to Wikipedia as a starting point to get your bearings on the issue and where you'll find out such things as the fact that Fletcher Prouty was a chief of special operations for the Joint Chiefs of Staff under President John F. Kennedy and a former former colonel in the U.S. Air Force who retired from military service to become a banker and subsequently became a critic of U.S. foreign policy, particularly the covert activities of the Central Intelligence Agency. And for those of you who are a little more interested in some of the deeper background of Fletcher Prouty and his work, you can go to the Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty reference site at Prouty.org, where you will encounter this biography. It says the Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty reference site is a focal point where researchers can locate and retrieve articles, books, videos, and tapes on a variety of subjects which Fletcher has written and participated in. Colonel Prouty spent nine of his 23-year military career in the Pentagon, 1955 to 1964, two years with the Secretary of Defense, two years with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and five years with Headquarters, U.S. Air Force. In 1955, he was appointed the first focal point officer between the CIA and the Air Force for clandestine operations per National Security Council Directive 5412. He was briefing officer for the Secretary of Defense from 1960 to 1961 and for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. At times, he would be called to meet with Alan Dulles and John Foster Dulles at their home on highly classified business. He was assigned to attend MK Ultra meetings. In this capacity, Colonel Prouty would be at the nerve center of the military-industrial complex at a time unequaled in American history. He has written on these subjects about the JFK assassination, the Cold War period, and Vietnamese warfare, and the existence of a secret team. He backs up his work with seldom-seen or mentioned official documents, some never before released. Fletcher Prouty offers a rare glimpse of the power elite, as described by Buckminster Fuller or the High Cabal, as Winston Churchill referred to them, and how they really operate. Those who have not been in a position to witness events such as these from the inside would not understand how invisible, but ultimately effective, they and their power structures are. Well, that's certainly a provocative and very interesting opening to a website about Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty and his work. And that is at least a basic bare-bones synopsis of the man and who he was. Of course, more biographical details and names and dates uh, can be garnered from the Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty reference site at Prouty.org. But why don't we move along and take a listen to something that I think will probably be familiar to almost everyone in the audience. And, uh, and maybe you don't even know that you're aware of Prouty and his influence, But of course, Prouty was probably most famous for his role as an advisor to Oliver Stone's JFK film and the person who was fictionalized as the character X in that film. 
Garrison. Yes. Glad you came. Sorry about the precautions. Well, I just hope it was worth my while, Mr. I could give you a false name, but I won't. Just call me X. I've already been warned by the agency, Mr. Whoever, so this is another type of threat. I'm not with the agency, Mr. Garrison. And I assume if you've come this far, what I have to say interests you. But I'm not going to name names and tell you who or what I represent, except to say you're close. You're closer than you think. Okay? Everything I'm going to tell you is classified top secret. I was a soldier, Mr. Garrison. Two wars. I was one of those secret guys in the Pentagon that supplies the military hardware, the planes, bullets, rifles, for what we call black operations, black ops, assassinations, coup d'etat, rigging elections, propaganda, psych warfare, and so forth. World War II, I was in Romania, Greece, Yugoslavia. I helped evacuate part of the Nazi intelligence apparatus just before the end of the war. I used those guys in the fight against the communists. In Italy, 48. We stole the elections, France 49, wrote the strikes, overthrew Carino in the Philippines, Arbenz in Guatemala, Mozadeg in Iran. We were in Vietnam in 54, Indonesia 58, Tibet 59, got the Dalai Lama out. We were good, very good. Then we get into the Cuban thing, not so good. Set up all the bases for the invasion, supposed to take place in October 62. Mm-hmm. Khrushchev sent the missiles to resist the invasion, Kennedy didn't invade. We were standing out there with our dicks in the wind. A lot of pissed off people, Mr. Garrison. Understand? I'll come to that later. So, 1963. I spent much of September 63 working on the Kennedy plan for getting all U.S. personnel out of Vietnam by the end of 1965. This plan was one of the strongest, most important papers issued from the Kennedy White House. His National Security Action Memo 263 ordered home the first 1,000 troops for Christmas. But then in November, one week after the murder of Vietnamese President Dien Nguyen Saigon and two weeks before the assassination of our president, a strange thing happened to me. The Panama... T-47. Sir, is that in there? The point is, the weapons need to be where the troops are. That's... Colonel? Excuse me. I got a note saying you want to see me, General. I do indeed. Are going to the South Pole. I am? You are. Dr. Mooney's got all the details. I want you to check with him and have yourself a nice vacation. I was sent by my superior officer, we'll call him Y. I was sent by General Y to the South Pole as the military escort for a group of international VIPs. I was on my way back in New Zealand when the president was killed. Now, Oswald was charged at 7 p.m. Dallas time with Tippett's murder. That's 2 o'clock in the afternoon of the next day, New Zealand time. But already, their papers had the entire history of this unknown 24-year-old man, Oswald. Studio picture, detailed biographical data, Russian information, and were pretty sure of the fact that he killed the president alone, although it took them four more hours before they even charged him with that crime in Dallas. Felt to me as if... Well, a cover story was being put up, like we would in a black op. Anyway, after I came back, I asked myself, why was I, the chief of special ops, selected to travel to the South Pole at that time to do a job that any number of others could have done? And I wondered if it could have been because one of my routine duties, if I had been in Washington, would have been to arrange for additional security in Texas. So I decided to check it out. 
And sure enough, I found out that someone had told the 112th Military Intelligence Group at 4th Army Headquarters at Fort Sam Houston to stand down that day over the protests of the unit commander, Colonel Wright. I believe it's a mistake. This is significant because it is standard operating procedure, especially in a known hostile city like Dallas, to supplement the Secret Service. I mean, even if we had not allowed the bubble top to be removed from the limousine, we would have placed at least 100 to 200 agents on the sidewalk without question. I mean, only a month before. Dallas. UN Ambassador Adlai Stevenson was spit on and hit. There had already been several attempts on de Gaulle's life in France. We would have arrived days ahead of time, studied the route, checked all the buildings, never would have allowed all those wide open empty windows overlooking Dealey. Never. We'd have had our own snipers covering the area. The minute a window went up, they'd have been on the radio. We'd have been watching the crowd, packages rolled up, newspapers, coat over and up. Never would have let a man open an umbrella along the way. Never would have allowed that limousine to slow down to 10 miles an hour, much less take that unusual curve at Houston and Elm. You would have felt an army presence in the streets that day. None of this happened. It was a violation of the most basic protection codes we have, and it is the best indication of a massive plot in Dallas. Now, who could have best done this? Black Ops, Mr. Garrison. People in my business, people like my superior officer, could have called Colonel Reich and said, look, we have another unit coming from so-and-so, providing security, you'll stand down. I mean, that day, in fact, there were some individual Army intelligence people in Dallas. I'm still trying to figure out who and why. But they weren't protecting client. And, of course, Oswald. Army intel had a Harvey Lee Oswald on file. And all those files have been destroyed. Many strange things were happening, and your Lee Harvey Oswald had nothing to do with them. We had the entire cabinet on a trip to the Far East. We had one-third of a combat division returning from Germany in the air above the United States at the time of the shooting. At 12.34 p.m., the entire telephone system went out in Washington for a solid hour. And on the plane back to Washington, word was radioed from the White House Situations Room to Lyndon Johnson that one individual performed the assassination. Does that sound like a bunch of coincidences to you, Mr. Garrison? No. Not for one moment. The cabinet was out of the country to get their perceptions out of the way. Troops were in the air for possible riot control. The telephones didn't work to get the wrong stories from spreading if anything went wrong with the plan. Nothing was left to chance. He could not be allowed to escape alive. <sighs> well, I never thought things were the same after that. Vietnam started for real. There was an air of, I don't know, make-believe in the Pentagon and CIA. Those of us who'd been in secret ops since the beginning knew the Warren Commission was fiction. But there was something, something deeper, uglier. I knew Alan Dulles very well. I'd briefed him many a time in his house. But for the life of me, I still can't figure out why he was appointed to investigate Kennedy's death, the man who had fired him. Dallas, by the way, was General Wyeth's benefactor. I got out in 64, resigned my commission. I never realized Kennedy was so dangerous to the establishment. Was that Warren? Well, that's a real question, isn't it? Why? The how and the who is just scenery for the public. Oswald, Ruby, Cuba, the Mafia. Keeps them guessing like some kind of parlor game prevents them from asking the most important question, why? Why was Kennedy killed? Who benefited? Who has the power to cover it up? Who? Well, that is a very good way of framing the question, and one that I think it would serve the interests of not only JFK researchers, but also 9-11 researchers and 
people who are interested in other alternative histories to keep in mind when they are engaged in their own research, not necessarily arguing with everyone about the finer points of this or that detail, so much as the overarching question, does this or does this not prove that there was a cover-up and that the only people who could affect that cover-up are the people in the positions of power to make that happen? Well, that is a good way of trying to think of how this or that piece of information might fit into the overall agenda, isn't it? So people who are interested in how Mr. X in the fictional movie of JFK answers that question and puts the pieces together can certainly go and turn to that movie and continue watching that scene. And uh, why not? Certainly, uh, Fletcher Prouty was an advisor on the uh, movie itself, so one would think that the fictionalized version of his character, the Mr. X there, uh, would at least have some of the ideas of, of Prouty in his mouth, as it were, in his fictional mouth. And, uh, and it is interesting the way those pieces are connected, and I'm sure that it does have something resembling the truth within it. But, of course, that is a fictionalization. And, uh, and as good as it is for opening a lot of doors and ask, getting a lot of people to ask questions who would not necessarily ask questions, it has to at least be understood as a fictionalization. And like any other fictionalization, cuts corners in places and, and takes liberties with certain facts in order to, to get to a coherent narrative that's easily portrayable in just a few hours. For people who have spent their entire lives studying the JFK case ad nauseum, I'm sure that uh, that they can point to many other facts that complicate various pieces of that puzzle. So once again, take it as what it's worth, and, and that may not be a 100% total veritas, but at least gets us pointed in the right direction. But for people who are interested not in the fictional Fletcher Prouty, in the fictionalized JFK movie about the Garrison case, uh, in the Garrison investigation into the murder of JFK, it would perhaps be best to start to turn our attention towards Fletcher Prouty himself. And what better way to do that than with the resources offered at a place like the Fletcher Prouty reference site at Prouty.org. Now, the Prouty.org website offers two resources for would-be Prouty scholars that I think are quite valuable. And again, I don't say this just as a theoretical thing. This is something that I myself have invested in because I did find this information to be valuable enough to invest in it. One of them is the Collected Works of Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty, a, a CD-ROM, which is available for purchase from Prouty.org that includes basically everything that uh, Prouty ever wrote or recorded on audio or video, or if not everything, certainly it seems that way, uh, including numerous speeches and interviews on a wide range of subjects that Prouty had personal and direct experience of. Everything from, of course, the JFK assassination to such topics as the Gary Powers U-2 flight to mind control, MK Ultra, and the Dr. Ewan Cameron to flight KE-007, which we've talked about on a previous episode of this podcast, uh, information on how FOIA really works, uh, all sorts of information about the CIA and the secret team. Uh, the actual books, the uh, two books that he is best known for, which are The Secret Team, which for a long time was out of print. It's currently back in print, but it is available right here on the collected works of uh, Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty. Also, his other well-known book, JFK, The CIA, Vietnam, and the Plot to Assassinate John F. Kennedy, all available in their entirety on this CD-ROM. Uh, along with many, many other articles and speeches and interviews and videos of Colonel Fletcher Prouty. So an absolute incredibly uh, useful resource right there, which you can buy online from Prouty.org. Another very valuable resource is called The Secrets of the U-2 uh, Flight. The Secrets of the Gary Powers U-2 Flight, excuse me. And that also is available from Prouty.org. It's available as part of the, the 
quote-unquote Black Op combo from Black Op Radio, hosted by Len Osanik, which I'm sure many of my listeners will be familiar with. If not, I suggest you check out Black Op Radio, another very interesting broadcast that goes out on almost a weekly basis, or usually a weekly basis. And in the Black Op combo, you get the archive of all 559 episodes that are available uh, so far on CD and DVD. And you can also get a four-interview DVD with Gary Powers uh, on the U2 flight and the secrets behind it. More on which in a moment. But first, let's step back for a moment and talk a little bit about this idea that Colonel Fletcher Prouty is probably best associated with, which is the idea of the secret team, or the idea that there is some sort of invisible power behind the government, which is in fact operating covert operations which are completely outside of the purview of the checks and balances that are at least nominally associated with the American form of government. Now, this is an extremely important concept, and there's a lot to flesh out, which is why I would suggest you get something like the Colonel uh, L. Fletcher Prouty Collected Works on the CD-ROM so that you can explore it in much greater detail. But let's take a listen to a, a sh- the audio of a very, very lengthy and detailed broadcast that was made available on Black Op Radio, but which we will be putting here, and I'll be putting a link to a YouTube video that encapsulate this encapsulates this. Um, It's a two and a half hour video called The Secret Team, The Formation and Purpose of the Secret Team. Um, Absolutely fascinating series of conversations with Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty here. So let's just take a listen to a short representative sample where he talks a little bit about this concept of of secret teams and how they can function, how they come together bureaucratically, and how they really function off the record. So the first question I have here would be how, quote, on the basis of security, unquote, would Alan Dulles, quote, place people in all other areas of the government? Well, one of the first things that I realized was that it was Mr. Dulles' desire to have the office that General White asked me to create uh, in the Air Force headquarters in order to create a focal point system. And uh, as Mr. Dulles told me later, he said, I don't want various people from my agency going into the Pentagon and dealing with different people there and therefore uncovering the activities of the CIA to a large number of people because obviously such a ring would then proliferate to others and if they wanted submarines they have to bring in some Navy people and if they wanted uh, helicopters they have to talk to some Army people. He said, I want a focal point. I want an office that's cleared to do what what we have to have done, uh, an office that knows us very, very well, and then an office has access to a system in the Pentagon, but the system will not be aware of what initiated the request. They'll think it came from the Secretary of Defense. They won't realize it came from the Director of Central Intelligence. So you see, the Dulles philosophy was to control the focal point area. This led then to the creation of focal point offices everywhere. And as I established this uh, tab six organization, we called it, in every major staff area within the the Air Force, because that was my jurisdiction at the time, I would have cleared people, another focal point, you might say a a sub-focal point, a person I could go to who had been given ahead of time the authority to do whatever it was that he was authorized to do. 
and, uh, and, and we stressed that authorized business. He would have to be sure he had orders either from my office or directly up to the chief of staff and that we knew what we were doing for CIA. Well, this leads to another step you might call breeding. We had to work with uh, various agencies of the government, not just the Defense Department. We had to have contact points in, uh, in the State Department, in the FAA, in the Customs Service, in the Treasury, in the FBI, and all around through the government, up in the White House. And gradually we, we wove a network of people who understood the symbols and the code names and the things we were doing and how we handled money, which was the most important thing. And then we began to assign people there who those agencies thought were from the Defense Department, but they actually were people that we put there from the CIA. This led to the, to the creation of a system of powerful individuals, people whose jobs were quite dominant in some of these other agencies, especially after they'd been there two or three years, because we, we put them in there by talking to the top man, the, the cabinet officer or the, the head of the agency, and we'd say, this man is being placed here so that he can facilitate uh, covert activities and so that he can retain the secrecy that's required, and he will keep you informed at all times. Well, in the bureaucracy, the top people move faster than anybody else, not the bottom people. And so the man we had explained that to maybe a year and a half earlier would be transferred or leave the government, but our man is still there. So one or two cycles of that, and that agency might not even know that guy was, was there anymore. He, they would, and I mean, what his origins were, they would think he was just another one of their own employees. And as a result, he became extremely effective because if we wanted something done, I remember a, a rather very, very sensitive operation that I needed some information on, and I needed it from the FBI. I didn't go to the FBI. I went to this guy that we had planted, and he got it twice as fast and, and um, in a much better form than I would have gotten from the, from the FBI. Even though I was at that time working from the Office of Secretary of Defense, we had no trouble working with the FBI. It was just to facilitate it. Yeah. These people became very, very adept. By the same token, People that were employees of CIA agents were assigned even in the office of, of the Secretary of Defense. We had certain people there who were CIA employees. Ed Lansdale worked for CIA all his, all his uh, adult career. A person named Frank Hand worked there. Now, the people in the Pentagon thought they were ordinary military employees. They, they didn't realize, uh, well, just to give you an example. Uh, Colonel Ensdale uh, was a full colonel in the Air Force. That was his cover story. And he had been a full colonel for a few years. And uh, the Air Force was promoting some men to general. The question came up, was, would Lansdale be eligible? And uh, I told Mr. Dulles personally, I said, you know, you can make Lansdale a general if you just write a letter to uh, General LeMay because you're going to pay the bills anyway and uh, not the Air Force. A few days later, I got a call from General May's office. He called me in and he had the list of men that the Air Force was promoting to general. And as I recall, it was only 13 or 14 officers and LeMay, uh, being General LeMay, knew every one of them in except one. I said, I don't know who the hell he is. I'm not going to promote him to a general. 
And I said, well, don't you have a file on him? He said, yes. He opened it up, and the top letter was from Alan Dulles. I said, he's a very important man for Alan Dulles. I said, okay, I'll promote him. Just like that. Well, that's a good way to get a promotion, you see. But that created a very important job within the structure of the Office of Secretary of Defense. Uh, Frank Hand had been there for years in the same way. Frank was a, a civilian of... Uh, I always wrote that he was the most important agent that the agency had because he was operating daily and effectively as a member of the Office of Secretary of Defense. And you can think of the things that a person in that capacity can do when his home base really is CIA. Well, uh, although people didn't believe this when they first heard it, there are assignments like that in the White House. There are assignments like that in the State Department. It's hard to tell the difference, you might say, between Bill Bundy, who was a longtime CIA employee, and McGeorge Bundy, who was in the White House with Kennedy. The two brothers certainly want to act side by side. They have the same goals and the same intentions. Well, there were many things that duplicated like that. So that it w wasn't long before, and I'd say by the end of the 50s, early 60s, before we had spread through the government uh, what I called a secret team, a group of people who really knew how to operate the CIA business. Well, the tape physically ends at that point, and they have to change tapes to recommence the interview, so I will use that as a jumping-off point to let you go and continue exploring that fascinating conversation for yourselves in greater detail. Once again, that comes from a two-and-a-half-hour series of interviews, uh, so that is just a, a little piece of the bigger puzzle. But I certainly hope that you were paying attention during that clip and really caught on to the significance of what Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty was, was revealing there from his inside position, his first-hand knowledge of what happened inside the Department of Defense. And with these well-placed CIA strategic assets, and not just any assets, but of course personal friends of Alan Dulles, and I think many of you out there will know Alan Dulles and his importance in the bigger scheme of things, but just to see how it physically works and how the bureaucracy actually plays out in a system like that is mind-boggling and chilling and really uh, reveals so much of the, the whole plan and the agenda and the way it operates just in and of itself, just knowing that these people infest all the different layers of government from the, the Department of Defense to the White House, some really staggering things revealed just in that seven or eight minutes uh, interview of that clip of that interview. So once again, just so much to cogitate on about these, this concept of a secret team, this rogue network, whatever you want to call it, that operates nesting itself within the corridors of power and then uh, using the, the puppet administration or whoever the flavor of the week in the White House is as the cover for what, what is really going on at a much deeper level. And uh, of course, people might be reminded of uh, the writings of Peter Dale Scott and deep politics and the deep state and that type of uh, idea. And of course, this is something that's been fleshed out in a lot of different ways and given different terminology by different people. But once again, there is an insider revealing how it actually works on a functional basis. So I guess you can you can be reserve skepticism and, and think, well, maybe he's just lying to us about all of this. And uh, by all means, reserve skepticism and go and look up uh, some of these facts for yourself and see if you can connect some of the pieces from other uh, pieces of information from other people. But once you do so and you, you find this, uh, this absolute incredible spiderweb that's been woven by the intelligence agencies and not only that, but specific factions within them, I think it really does put an entire perspective on how this entire agenda can be 
worked on and rolled out from behind the scenes and from these agents that are nested within certain levels of government. And it has nothing to do with government itself per se. Government is just the big stick that these particular factions can wield as it suits them with their agents of influence, their focal points within various uh, departments and ministries. Extremely, extremely interesting stuff. But let's move on from that topic, which again, I do suggest you go and explore at more length in your own time. Let's turn to another fascinating topic and uh, something that, again, Colonel Prouty has personal experience with that he can reveal and shed some light on. A very mysterious incident that uh, that perhaps from an outside perspective to this day still doesn't make sense given what we know in the uh, in the public record and on the uh, on the Wikipedia milk toast uh, bland offering of of this history. And that's the 1960 U2 incident. Of course, this is the uh, the shootdown, or so we're told, of the U-2 spy plane over Soviet airspace back on May 1st, May Day. Once again, a very interesting day, to, as uh, people who listen to the recent New World Next Week will remember. May Day of 1960, and uh, it was came at a very, very crucial time during an East-West summit in Paris, and uh, very, very interesting incident. And of course, there is much, much, much more to this incident than we are presented with in the official history books so let's turn to uh, at least a section of what, once again, is part of that Black Op combo, the, the which includes the collected works of L. Fletcher Prouty and the secrets of the Gary Powers U-2 flight. Let's turn to that DVD, the one-hour DVD that it contains four interviews with Colonel Power on the U-2 flight for a little bit more background about what really took place over Soviet airspace that day. On May the 1st, 1960... A U-2 unarmed reconnaissance plane took off to fly a spy mission over the Soviet Union. The pilot was Francis Gary Powers, who was employed by the CIA and was claimed to have been shot down by the Soviet military at 70,000 feet, approximately 1,200 miles inside the Soviet Union. In the following days, Nikita Khrushchev exploited the U.S. government's cover story and walked out of the summit meeting in Paris on May 16, 1960. There is a direct relationship between the U-2 incident and the end of U.S. President Eisenhower's crusade for peace. In response to Khrushchev, the U.S. Department of State issued a statement on May 7, 1960 that, insofar as the authorities in Washington are concerned, there was no authorization for any such flight as described by Mr. Khrushchev. Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty worked in the Pentagon at that time and he has a very interesting recollection of this event. What follows are four separate interviews regarding Gary Powers' U-2 flight. It said that the U-2 flights over Russia, the Americans shared the information with the British freely, and in return, the British supplied pilots. I saw a picture of 10, 15 guys, and evidently they were U-2 pilots, and it claimed that these guys were British. Well, oh, the British had U-2s. Oh, their own U-2s. Yeah. Oh, okay. The U-2 wasn't a CIA thing. <laughs> they couldn't maintain airplanes. SAC maintained the Air Force. The U-2 selected the targets and the time of going and that sort of thing. But the, the planes were supported by the military. They were purchased by the military. Um, uh, I made one of the original phone calls uh, simply as a function of my office. Mm-hmm. Uh, the system I had furnished supplies for them all to their operation, and uh, it, it, was a, it was a professional uh, flight operation, which the CIA was 
authorized to use for spying purposes. The secret okay, of the U-2 was the camera. Jeez, the camera was so advanced that that's what most... That's, the U-2 that went down, with powers on it, didn't have the U-2 camera. It had an ordinary old bomber camera. Oh, it, really? It was somebody ahead of time selectively had taken the Lundahl out and let a... Uh, I, I even have somewhere the serial number, the one that was on the U-2 that went down, and it wasn't a, a Lundahl. And That's they were, In other words, they were trying so hard to keep the Lundahl out of uh, the Soviets' hands that... But they that knew flight, that plane was going down. Yeah, well, that plane had crashed previously. Uh, it, it was landing in Japan and run short of fuel at the base where Oswald was working, at the time he was working there. At Sugi. And it bellied in, which didn't hurt. It lands on a belly anyway. It's got a little tiny wheel underneath, but no other wheels. And they brought it to Lockheed, and the Lockheed people uh, <coughs> rebuilt it. And in the process, it appears, put a different camera in it and maybe some other things to protect secrets. And then that's the plane that flew over the Soviet Union, which is kind of an interesting story. So to get back to this, the British were able to use those planes, or they bought their own? I don't know whether they bought them or whether they were uh, just, just made available. The job, it's yeah. just like I was telling you about the Norwegian operation we had where the planes are based in Norway, but, but we use non-American pilots a good bit of the time to fly them over the Soviet Union regularly. It, it's a way clandestine work is done so that it isn't attributable, but of course there's no way you can deny the, yeah. where a U-2 comes from. See, it, it's got to be an American airplane. But in that case, Gary Powers was in a uniform or a jumpsuit with well, information uh, with him. You know, you did the famous pictures of taking of, of everything he had in his pockets when he went down. Well, the U-2 pilots didn't have any pockets, for one thing. Uh, I mean, I'm going to have a guy that's supposed to be a spy and then equip him with uh, everything else. <laughs> you know, his club card and his automobile license and all that. And plus the trinkets he was supposed to hand out to bribe people to take care of him, and a flag that's saying, I'm a U.S. citizen, I need your help, and, uh, you know, an escape and evasion kit. Why, well, that's ridiculous. Well, Powers didn't know that was on the plane. The parachute has two seats. Mm -hmm. One is the one you sit on, and one is your parachute. It was in between the two seats. Somebody had put his stuff there. They took it from him and said, you're going on a flight. They put it. So when he landed, the Russians found it, and they said, here's what he had with him. What do you mean, tell us he's not an American military pilot? Well, that stuff is contrived. But the facts that came out later you know, proved the whole darn thing was set up that way. He, he was surprised to find out what they claimed he had on board. And by in the facts, I'm not familiar with them. Did he crash land, or did he actually just land? Well, the distinction in the U-2 is, is not very great. Okay. If you got a runway, it's not a crash. If it's in the field, it is a crash. The, the underneath of a U-2 has just a small single wheel, and because it's made as light as it can be. In fact, all the pilots call it a glider. And the wreckage that they showed was sent to, to Kelly Johnson at Lockheed, and he said that wreckage never came from one of our airplanes. It's just some junk they had in Moscow and took a picture of it. Oh, really? You know, the, the picture of the wreckage of the U-2 is not the yeah. U-2. Because they did show big pictures of the camera <coughs> in that, right? Yeah. But I didn't realize that was well, not had, the... Well, they had the plane. And another thing was that in one of the pictures, the U-2 uh, is shown, and the, the uh, canopy, the big plastic canopy over the top of the pilot, Laying on the ground, unbroken, not broken. Well, you couldn't take, it'd be like glass, dropping a, a, a glass from 100 feet up and it didn't break. I mean, the, the, they contrived the darn, the Russians were, were trying to get, you know, 
trying to prove to the world that they could bring a plane down from 80 or 90,000 feet. Uh, and, and see, that's how why they built the plane. They knew at Lockheed that the, the, nothing the Russians had could reach the altitude of the operating altitude of the airplane. Therefore, it couldn't be brought down. So when the Russians said they did bring it down, the first thing Dulles said to the Fulbright Committee was, they couldn't have reached it at its operating altitude. It came down lower and then they got it. Well, uh, it got it means they put MiGs around it, flying with it. Somebody said that there was a, a reporter over there who was riding on a train or something like that who wrote a story about the sky was full of MiGs. But so they just he, forced him down. Yeah, that's when he was down a little while. Well, of course, he, he had, his engine wasn't running. His engine had conked out. See, the U-2 had to have special fuel, Hydrogen? and the special fuel was combined, uh, the JP fuel, the ordinary fuel we'd use like in an air, air, airline airplane, and hydrogen, raw hydrogen. And the, the, the hydrogen tank only had half enough. So when it ran out, the plane came down right halfway on the flight. In the middle. Yeah, predictable. Right in the heart of the Soviet Union. It, but it's your position that Alan Dulles didn't know that they had put all this uh, identification in there, or even that the flight was being run. Well, I don't think so. I ever, ever said I wrote that. No, uh, no, you no didn't write it. There's no just... way to know. Uh, you know, uh, it appeared to me that the U2 people were the most surprised people in the world to find out that plane was up there. The plane was sent by some other motivation which was very limited and got it in the air because my office was across the hall from the U2 people's office and I provided support and that morning when I came to work their office was bedlam and I wondered what's the matter and finally one of the guys said we just lost the plane well, if they lost the plane they wouldn't have been all shook up you know they would have known it was lost they were um, shook yeah. up because they didn't they didn't know a plane was in the air that's what bothered them and another thing you should know about this kind of work is the office directly across from me was called Cover and Deception. Every time there's an operation, you have another office saying all the different ways are that it couldn't possibly have happened. You know, like robbing a bank. <laughs> you work out your cover story ahead of time. So you go rob the bank and you have your friend in Las Vegas saying, oh no, I was with my, my friend was with me. We were in room 110 and uh, you know, we couldn't have possibly been robbing a bank. We were out in Las Vegas. You got to have your cover. So, but this is the way the government would work. It's either you two guys, my office, and the cover people, and we all supported each other. See, I provided the hydrogen, among other things. Mm. Well, once again, we will be forced in the interest of time to cut that clip short. It does go on for an hour, and there are many, many other fascinating aspects of the U-2 flight that are explored in that conversation. And it is available freely online. Black Op Radio has posted it to their YouTube site. Of course, it is also available via the Black Op Radio combo on Proudy.org. So I would direct your attention in that direction once again. But just to expand things out and to show that Colonel Proudy just touched on a remarkable range of subjects in his speaking and writing. Let's turn to another fascinating clip from an interview with Colonel Prouty, this time on a very, very different subject, the subject of peak oil and oil as a fossil fuel. Well, you mentioned in one of your last talks that petroleum wasn't what we thought it was, that it wasn't a fossil fuel, that it didn't come from fossil animals. <laughs> yeah. Is it just a mineral? Is it a mineral like any other mineral? Is that, is that how it, is that how it, uh, what would you say? Uh, how did it, 
What's the origin it, of You of see, <clears throat> when they first found petroleum, uh, because they were beginning to make motors and, and, and needed on axles of wheels and railroad trains and all that sort of thing, and remember, trains started in the beginning of the 19th century, then oil went from a, just a lubricant to a fuel, and it made it valuable. And Rockefeller happened to be the smartest man in the business at the time, but he made a lot of most of his money, or much of it, off the transport of the petroleum as well as selling it. But one thing they realized was, if you, because oil, uh, oil is uh, putting a price on oil is like putting a price on a pail of water. You know, the, the, no, no initial cost is in the ground, and, and in those days they were some of it almost what you'd call surface mining the oil. They didn't go down deep. So in order to get the price up, they hit on the idea that they would have to make it appear to be scarce. That, they, that boy, after we take the next few barrels out, we're probably going to have to close as well, you know, that kind of thing. But a very fortuitous event. In 1892, there was a convention in Geneva of scientists to determine what organic substances are. Well, the definition of organic is a substance with hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon. And so it's usually a living substance, a tree. You analyze a dead tree, hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen, and grass, and so on, living things. Animals, we are, hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon. So at this Geneva Convention, Rockefeller took advantage of sending some scientists over who said, Oil, petroleum, is hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon. Therefore, it must be derived from the, uh, the spoiling, the rotting of formerly living matter. And uh, playing the game properly, when the, this scientific convention was over, they defined oil as a, the residue from formerly living matter. Well, that makes it a fossil fuel. I don't know why they decided to use the word fossil, but it says formerly living matter is fossil. Well, of course, today, and, and, and another thing we should know is that there has never been a fossil, a, a, a real fossil, found below 16,000 feet. And you can't argue at 16,000 as a level line because someplace the ground sinks and so on, but 16 is what the scientists say, 16,000. We mine oil, or we, we drill for oil, at 30,000, 33,000, 28,000 every day of the week. So right there, we rule it out that it isn't fossil fuel. It's called fossil fuel for the minds of the public to feel that it is a, a, an asset that is running out, being depleted. We talk about depletion allowance, which is a lot of, you know. And actually, if you know the world's oil supply, you know that it is not going to run out for an awfully long time. It is the second most prevalent liquid on Earth. And, and we haven't begun to... Dig. Well, with all that background, you see, the people in charge of the petroleum business, for perfectly reasonable business uh, things, like any other man in a business, wants to keep his price as high as he can get away with. And the way to do is just say, well, as no more. We, 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 the last barrel is going to cost $1,000, and then it's all done. And, and they preach that stuff. What bothers me is that, that in geology books, it's in there. The geologists say it's a fossil fuel. They, they've, somehow they've been bought. I mean, you, 
I, <clears throat> I went to a four-year federal staff energy seminar run by the government of the United States during the so-called energy crisis. I was the participant that represented the railroad industry. The airline industry was there. Every AA administrative assistant of senators and congressmen was there. The CIA was there. The Defense Department was there. The State Department was there. Sometimes sitting right in front of me in the row would be Henry Kissinger with his friend, um, uh, the, the head of the uh, Department of Defense. Uh, that's too bad. I can't put the names with them. But anyway, people like that, top men in the government sitting there listening to the Federal Staff Energy Seminar. Well, what this was doing is for four years, they were teaching a propaganda line to the leading people in this country, and therefore to the leading people in the world, when you include the Schlesingers, Kissinger and Schlesinger, among others. And the object of it was, as Kissinger used in his own terms when it was time for him to speak, to create a world price for oil. In other words, not... Uh, 30 cents a gallon here and 90 cents a gallon there, but let's get a world price. That's their goal, and they're trying to do that for wheat and everything else. We don't realize what, it, what the controls are, whether it's oil or some of these other things. Almost everything today is being categorized at the highest price they can possibly make it go. And so calling petroleum a fossil fuel is the basis for th this system uh, with respect to petroleum. And, and I went, I don't know if the name Arthur Kantrowitz rings any bell. Arthur Kantrowitz is the head of the Kantrowitz Labs set up by the uh, AFCO company uh, near Boston, uh, Scientific Laboratories. And um, a great man in the scientific world. And Kantrowitz and I were sitting at a table at this uh, seminar once and the table happened to be all young college grad PhD geologists. And so just to get a conversation started, I turned to Kantowitz and I said, Arthur, what do you think about this foolishness of these speakers talking about fossil fuel? And uh, it was kind of put up. He started laughing. He said, you know, that gets me. He said, he says, I don't, he said, I don't have a geology degree, but he had a thousand other degrees. And he said, I don't understand. He said, you'd think that these heads, these other fellows at the table, we did it on purpose, start listening, you know. And he asked, he said, are you gentlemen? He says, you're here at the meeting. Are you gentlemen by any chance geologists? And one fellow, yes, I am. And the other, yeah. He said, well, why don't you tell me? He said, why, why is, why is, oh, you know, and he went on like that. We brought the house down because nobody could argue with Cantuous. He like, he like Einstein. People aren't going to, and he told him right there. He said, just drop it. But it's, it's in all the books and in all the papers. But it started from that strange meeting in 1892, a scientific convention in G I have a big, thick scientific encyclopedia put out by the Devon Ostrand Company that's about oh, 15 years old now, but it has the whole story of the conference. It doesn't have the Rockefeller part, but it has the whole story of how they straightened out organic chemicals and how it was all figured, and they've got petroleum right in there. Amazing. Amazing. So <laughs> These aren't accidental things, you see. There's a dollar sign behind almost everything. Yeah, okay. Once again, a very controversial but a very interesting subject and one that we have explored in bits and pieces over the podcasts available at CorbettReport.com. But there is a another take on it, the idea of artificial scarcity and the idea that 
fossil fuel oil is a convenient fiction for the people who want to promote the idea that oil is oh so scarce and is running out so you better be prepared to pay through the nose. Well, once again, I don't ask you to take anything that I say or anything that anyone who is featured on this podcast say, says for doctrine. You should go and look up all of the arguments for yourself. But at any rate, there is another perspective on it. Well, once again, if it seems that we've been rushing through a wide range of subjects today, that is only because I am trying to pique your curiosity and to give you a at least a taste of what the uh, Colonel Prouty brought to the table through his own experiences and his own research and uh, I think you'll agree that he does have just quite a range of information and some very interesting information at that. So certainly I hope that you will go and explore this information in greater detail through the various resources that are available online, including at Prouty.org. But let's turn on that note to a conversation that I had the pleasure of conducting in the very recent past with Len Osanik, who is the curator of the Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty reference site and is also the host of Black Op Radio at blackopradio.com. And he was the interviewer during that U2 Gary Powers clip that we listened to earlier in this podcast. And perhaps he will be familiar to some of you, to those who he is not familiar. Once again, I would direct you to blackopradio.com so you can become more familiar with his work and his interviews. Always some fascinating conversations and facts being brought to the table on a weekly basis there. So I hope people will go and check into that. But now let's take a listen to a clip from an interview that I had the pleasure to conduct with Len Osanik recently on this uh, this topic of Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty, who he was as a human being, and the work that he contributed, really what his legacy is for all of us coming along in the wake and trying to piece the pieces of the puzzle together again. Well, certainly Colonel Prouty's work does help us do that in a number of different ways. So let's listen to this section of this interview that I conducted with Leno Sanic. Once again, you can download the interview in its entirety at CorbettReport.com. But let's listen to a section where we're discussing Colonel Prouty, who he was as a human being, and his legacy. Well, let's step back for a minute. For those people out there who don't know about Colonel Fletcher Prouty or his background, let's talk a little bit about him and uh, his career at the Pentagon. Sure. Well, uh, in World War II, he he ended up being a VIP pilot. He had a very good uh, disposition, as I mentioned. Uh, he was uh, well-liked by everyone, very articulate. I think he was a, an English major. So he he had this good personality. And uh, generals, once he got onto this job of, of uh, flying VIPs, they all, they all liked him. And he said he'd, he'd leave his uh, co-pilot you know, at once they were up in the air uh, to continue the flight. And he'd go back and sit and chat with them. And he became very uh, good friends with a lot of uh, influential people. So when uh, World War II ended and uh, he was, you know, t- in the Air Force on various tasks, he was well thought of. So when, uh, um, you know, a chance for promotion or just to associate with uh, some of these influential people, um, he-, he was picked many times for a lot of, uh, a lot of jobs. And um, being being a VIP pilot, I think, was the catalyst for all that. And then he he came into the special new office that was uh, they called it uh, Team B. And what it was, it was when the CIA was being formed after 1949, I think, into the 50s. They dis- they discovered that they were duplicating a lot of jobs, and and they had to uh, coordinate. Things so they wouldn't there wouldn't be mistakes and, and people walking over each other. So they set up this office where the CIA 
uh, representative would meet with the Air Force and the Marines and the Army and the Navy. And when they would brief people saying, we're doing this operation, we're flying three people in here and we need to be picked up by a submarine. And we knew, they would coordinate that effort. So it was mostly in, cl- mostly in clandestine work. And uh, that's what Fletcher was, the Air Force representative. And so he was a, a focal point officer, that's what they called him. And this was called Team B, and it was uh, very high up in the Pentagon. I think he said there's like 35,000 people there. He was one of the top 52 cleared for uh, the daily morning briefings. So along with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, then there's a, a group of briefing officers that present what's going around in the world or their operations. And um, when he was asked uh, by Alan Dulles to come on there, Alan Dulles sent him on a tour of all the the chiefs of stations around the world. I think he visited 82 countries because he said, when, I, when you pick up a phone, I want you to know that you're talking to some guy in a desk, but if it's in Greece and Athens or somewhere else, I want you to know really where that guy works and, and what the situation is. So Fletcher took this world tour of all these um, CIA stations and uh, got to meet the per- people personally so that when, when he went back to the Pentagon and he was dealing with these people, he would uh, have a good, clear picture of what was going on. What, what a remarkable background. So, so what year did you first actually meet Fletcher? Um, let's see. It would, uh, you know, 93, 94. I, I'm, I'm, so I don't he, recall. He, w- he was not in the Pentagon at that time. No, no, he was retired. Right. Oh, he retired, yeah. Um, he retired uh, January 1st, 1964. Right. I think with the assassination of President Kennedy, uh, he had had enough, and he had seen other generals who had asked for retirement uh, as well, and they, you know, they, had, they had enough. And he went to work for various jobs, but he was still liked. He was asked to come back and do some various, various special jobs. I think somebody important passed away in the Bank of Arlington, which is uh, uh, kind of a Pentagon bank there. And um, some of that money had was used, I think, by covert operations, and they just didn't want anybody to be in charge of that. So um, they asked him if he would be, uh, you know, assistant or vice president to that to handle some of these things. And um, he said he didn't know anything about banking. So they all oh, that's fine. We'll send you to correspondence school. Just if you take the job, we know that we have an honorable guy in here uh, working on this for us. And um, and uh, so he did that. He was working for uh, Amtrak. He, he had many careers after that, as a matter of fact. And then he became an author. He wrote a book in 1972 called The Secret Team, uh, The CIA and Its Control uh, and Allies and control, and control of the World's Resources. You know, um, he, he wrote a series of articles for various magazines, uh, not just criticizing the Central Intelligence Agency, but the way he put it was trying to level the playing field because he'd hear so much propaganda about something, and he just said, I, you know, I know differently, I, I have to say something. But um, his family and his wife, I think they, they kind of hoped he just kind of left that era alone, and um, they didn't really, I don't think anybody else really promoted his career as a writer and that, so he, he left it at two books. Although he wrote many articles, some of them weren't published, and that was one of the good things that when I came across all his material that he had in his den there, in his office, uh, 
he had articles and you know, various topics that had never been printed because you know he just sent them to various magazines and nobody picked them up. So um, when I assembled everything about, about his career, I thought, well, this is great. I've gotten to know Fletcher. Um, he's answered way more questions than I ever thought I'd know. Uh, how I can pay him back maybe by uh, putting him on a CD-ROM, and at that time it was a brand new endeavor. Uh, I think Windows 3.1 was only out there, <laughs> so I built it for that. Right. As a matter of fact, I recall that now for sure, that Windows 95 was not out yet uh, <laughs> when I was making the first CD-ROM for him. So I, collect, I thought if anybody really wants to know about Fletcher, I'll put everything I can on here. So there will be articles, pictures, and you know about his life and, and career. And, uh, and he was very thankful for that. So because at one point, he had written about some of the things and no one really had picked up uh, the material done anything with it until myself the way he wanted to. So at one point I had, I, uh, in order to uh, stop phoning his home, you know, too often and that and disturbing things, he just said, listen, uh, I have a fax machine here. So you just write down anything you want. Any time of the day, the fax will come out, the phone won't ring and it won't wake anybody up. Uh, just fax me any questions, anything you want. And uh, so I did that. I would fax him a question. He would type up a letter or reply and then just send it back to me like that. Hmm. And um, Email then, before email almost. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there were bulletin boards and things like that. And I'm sure there was email at that point, but Fletcher wasn't uh, advanced. He still just worked on a regular typewriter. He didn't really have a word processor too much. Uh, uh, I think other people helped him out on some of the things. But uh, yeah, he typed everything up. If you wrote a letter to him, he would get a hand-typed uh, and signed letter back from him. Hmm. Well, well, take us back to your first meeting with him and, and paint the scene for us. What was it like meeting with uh, Fletcher Prouty for the first time? Oh, God, it was the thrill of a lifetime, okay? Let me put it that way, because I uh, am around uh, music. I, I met some you know very famous music people, so it doesn't matter what someone being famous, but I had been uh, respected Fletcher and been crafting a letter for him, like I said, almost a year maybe. And when I got a reply and he, we went back and forth with some letters, um, I, I made the proposal that I would come in, you know, and visit him and maybe just talk to him for an afternoon. And some friends of mine were going to Alexandria, Virginia. They, they had a, a small group and they were going to be playing there. One of them was from Virginia, I think. I'm not sure where. But anyway, so we, the three of us decided to meet and uh, we asked uh, Fletcher, you know, we could get together. And so when the time came, we were going to meet at, at Joe Theismann's restaurant. And I, it was around the, uh, I don't know the exact date, um, but the Million Man March was happening there. So we were going to go to the National Press Club, and he liked to meet people there. And over lunch, we had lunch, I said, okay, I guess it's off to the, Nas uh, to the National Press Club, but did you notice the traffic was a nightmare because of this million man march in Washington, D.C.? And he says, oh, that's right. Uh, I forgot about that. Listen, you guys are coming back to my place then, right? And I had not anticipated that, so I was, I was just, this is great. I'm going to go back to your home and sit down in your uh, living room or wherever and talk or the backyard. Or, uh, I mean, I was just, uh, I was really happy. Uh, and it turns out that he it told me later on, look, a lot of writers or people come to, um, to request an interview or, or talk to him, and he'll just go to a neutral place where he, if he doesn't agree with somebody, you know, over lunch, he can just say, okay, well, thanks, I've got to go now and leave. So 
I knew it was a big deal, him inviting us back to his home, and we stayed there for hours. So the first time I met him, um, me and my friend Andy, we had, we had studied like this, like if Kate okay, We've already mailed Fletcher a few you know, questions and letters, and we've gone over his book. Now we're going to talk to him. Uh, I've got about 50 questions here. What have you got? You've got 50. I mean, the, the night before, we were both reading each other's questions and going on if, how could we rephrase the question to, you know, to be better. So that really paid off for us because when we were there, we were almost peppering him like left and right. Okay, what about this or what about that? And we would go back and forth alternating and um, – he said when we were shaking hands at the end, he says, you know, uh, some people come and they just want to talk to me or they, or they just say who killed Kennedy and they want a name or something and they don't even know what they want. But you guys were well prepared, and, and you know, uh, which we were, and uh, that made a good impression on him too. So like I, I mentioned that uh, if, I, if I work in music and, and play in a band and things like that, it was, uh, it was a big thrill for me to be with someone who worked in the Pentagon and then to um, have a – you know, I, I'll say mutual respect. I mean, he, he thought well enough of us, and um, it, uh, it, it was, a, it was a, a good moment, you know, just because we had accomplished what we wanted to do. So, to be clear, were those early meetings on tape and on the record? Uh, yeah, the first time that um, – well, I, I recorded a lot of phone calls with Fletch. So I, I had uh, a lot of hours of phone calls on tapes before I went to visit him. But uh, the first time I think I videotaped him might be 1996. Anyway, I made a collection of DVDs of Fletcher Prouty interviews, and that is on there. Right. Well, well, tell us about that and give us a sense of how many hours of material there are and what types of uh, subjects that you managed to cover. Well, the, the good thing about Fletcher and the interesting thing was he spoke really matter-of-factly about our operations he knew about and things that he did. He didn't really speculate too much about other people, and he didn't talk very much uh, in, that, in that mode of saying, I think this guy did this or that. But he would matter-of-factly say, here's what we did in the Philippines. Here is what we did in Athens. Here's what we did in Vietnam. Here's what happened to me in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So when you would pose a question to him about that, you would get an answer. And um, I, uh, I recognized that, I, I mean, I should have done more. <laughs> let, me, let me say that. But I recognized it was very important. So every time I went to visit him, I brought an a 8mm video camera and I would just kind of put it down and aim it at him. And I didn't want to make a big deal. Uh, so I gave him like a little lapel mic and put the camera on and I would record these uh, interviews with them. And I have quite a few of them. And there's a few from some other people as well. Uh, you know, Dave Ratcliffe and, uh, and John Judge and others that uh, I have assembled in. Um, I, I forget what I call it, but anyway, it's... Uh, Fletcher Prouty interviews on DVD. So I must have um, 16, I think there's 16 two-hour DVDs in the collection, which means there's you know, approximately 30 hours of footage of Fletcher. And that's not including the, um, like if you, if you are interested in the CD-ROM, which I assembled, I went through hundreds of cassette tapes of various people who interviewed Fletcher. He was on many radio shows. Uh, he was on some radio shows with me, as a matter of fact. And um, 
I collected everything I could, so there must be 10 hours of audio on that, and there's about 45 minutes of video on the CD-ROM. But on the DVD that you just mentioned, I have a set which I sell, and it's, uh, there's 16 of them. And, um, you know, you, it's approximately two hours on each DVD. So uh, there's, there's, there's quite a bit of information available on Fletcher. Well, what a re- remarkable resource that is, and um, and it's so it's so great that someone was able to get that down on record before he passed away. Um, but the obvious question for a lot of people is, why would someone who who was involved in these operations and presumably implicated in some of them to to some extent, why would he open the kimono, so to speak, on these types of uh, things, and why would he be so open with someone about this when obviously so many other people obviously never talk about what they were involved in or what was really going on behind the scenes well I I can't answer that exactly I can tell you my experience my experience with Fletcher is like people would you know ask me why is why hasn't somebody killed him or why isn't he done in I think he was well respected by people in that business in the Pentagon and I don't think he had many peers left there was there were people that he worked for like Bob McNamara the other guys uh, they were they were all onto other avenues, and they weren't really. Uh, I don't think that concerned with the '55 to '64 era. The things that he talked about, you would have to be quite a uh, student of history and American foreign policy to even pose the questions. I remember one time sitting in his backyard talking about something with him, and he kind of smiled and looked up, and he said, "You know, Len, I think there's only one in a million people that would even know this name," and. Uh, I said, well, I'm still interested. Tell me about him, you know. <laughs> um, um, but it was uh, – these are things in, in history that very few people talk about. He, he, he mentioned this term, leveling the playing field, a few times to me. So it was like if he heard such a contrary story in the news, like over and over about uh, – I can't pick you – know, I'll say Watergate. And he knew the, the, the topic they were talking about. It was a, the true story was something different. He would, if you asked him a question, he would tell you, you should look into this further or, you know, see this guy here, you know, whoever the guy's name is, you know, Hunt or Chuck Colson or somebody. You should you know, figure out where he was that night or, you know, I mean, without, um, I think the thing you pick up from Fletcher is that he wasn't trying to brag about anything and he wasn't really, um, exposing a lot. He was just lifting the lid of saying that there's more to this. Uh, I think when people investigate this, they're going to find a problem. And the problem would be like with black budgets, unlimited spending. Uh, uh, his experiences with people in, in oversight committees trying to find the truth about something and not even wanting to know. I mean, uh, an example would be something like that when he was a briefing officer and he was told to go to some senators and report what was going on. They didn't even want to talk to him about it. And his, his feeling was that if something went wrong, they didn't want to be the only guy in Congress that, that knew about it, and they would take the blame as well. So he said, listen, now whatever that operation, if Alan Dulles is in charge of that, it's good enough for me. I'm signing off. And he said, but I'm here to brief you on it. I, it's fine. I'm busy. I don't want to know about it. So some of the things he's writing about is those experiences there that when years later people are saying, there's been a problem here with the way government has been acting and, and reacting. Um, you know, he, he would answer your questions, but I don't think that um, 
See, it, it's strange, to, like you're saying, there's not too many people who wrote about this or would even speak to anybody. I mean, the kind of researchers that would even know who Fletcher Pratty was or to write him a letter and then go uh, try to interview him and meet with him, it, it, it was uh, very few people. Now, um, I made the effort and I collected some stuff uh, and knowledge from him. Uh, it was a like maybe getting a university degree for me. So I kind of pulled my socks up and I said, I'm going to, I, I want to learn how the world works here. I'm going to, here's somebody I would refer to as a professor, a very knowledgeable person. He could have been the dean of a university, you know. So uh, that was just my experience with them. Once again, Len Osanik of Black Op Radio and the curator of the Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty reference site talking about his personal experiences interviewing and corresponding with Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty. An absolutely fascinating conversation, so I hope you will go and listen to the entire conversation in the CorbettReport.com interview archives. And certainly check out Black Op Radio for the ongoing interviews that Len Osanik conducts with a range of researchers on a range of topics, although quite a bit on the assassinations of the 1960s. Once again, a valuable resource. But certainly if today's episode has at all worked to pique your curiosity or your interest in Fletcher Prouty and his work, then it is mission accomplished for myself. That is, of course, the point of today's episode to bring your attention to this very, very important, not a researcher, but a person who was actually involved in the events that we're speaking about and has some personal experience to bring to the table. And as I hope we've managed to demonstrate today, he spoke and wrote on a very wide range of subjects. So certainly someone who I think it is worth checking into. What better place to do that than at Proudy.org? And on that note, as Len Osanik notes in that interview, there's no way that we can say at this point in this day and age why Fletcher Proudy decided to go public with what he knew and in the manner in which he did so to a relatively unknown bunch of researchers who were diligent enough to track him down and simply ask the questions. Perhaps that is an object lesson for the young researchers out there, that uh, some of these figures who are directly involved in some of these operations may not be as untouchable and uninterviewable as we may think. So perhaps it might be in people's best interests out there to craft their own letters of to people who may be on the periphery of these types of issues or even involved in them. Who knows where it might lead? It is unfortunate that we'll never know exactly why Colonel Prouty opened up to people like Leno Sanic, but it is a good thing that he did so. And it's a good thing that he did so before his passing away at the age of 84 in 2001. And so it is that we come to the end of this podcast. So once again, thank you for joining me for today's episode of the podcast. And once again, please hang on during the hiatus as I take a few weeks off for vacation. But I will be back at the beginning of June, refreshed, recharged, and with an all new set of podcast episodes, interviews, articles, and videos for your enjoyment. And until then, please stay tuned to Corbett Report Radio once again every weeknight, 11 p.m. Central on republicbroadcasting.org. And with that, we'll leave it there. And in honor of Fletcher Prouty's predilection for the Big Band era, we're going to leave it on one of the greats of the Big Band era. We're going to be listening to April in Paris by Count Basie, complete with a little one more once. So until next month, thank you all for listening. Take care, and I'll see you in June.
one more time. One more once.